Thanks, Evan. It's a great pleasure for me to be here today. I thank God for every opportunity to meet with his people and to uh, catch the sense of the Holy Spirit in this place through his church. Thank you for being the church here where God has put you. And may your impact in this region increase on a daily basis. My, my, how our world needs Christ and how our world needs the church to be the church, loving them, serving them, showing them who God is by his great mercy and for his great glory. I've been asked to make just a word of announcement with regard to the coming of the Kiev Choir and Orchestra to our region. Roger McMurrin, who is a conductor of that orchestra, is a uh, friend of longstanding, having served uh, in Florida before God called him into this ministry, and a fine, fine musician, wonderful conductor. But God gave him a vision for these musicians who were out of work and who had nothing to do And so he formed an orchestra choir and then is teaching them the word of God and many, many have come to faith. And uh, they come on these tours uh, not only to bless the church but to grow in Christ together. So they are indeed brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, play wonderfully, fantastic music. And they're going to be here in our region this September. And on the 25th, I understand the bus is going to be leaving from Brush Prairie here to, uh, to go and, uh, and have a great time of, uh, of music. So would you keep that in mind and look for those tickets to go on sale uh, coming up next month. This morning, I've been asked to speak from the book of Revelation, at least as a launching pad. In chapter 2 of Revelation, we have a stern word from the Apostle John. It's in a section where he writes to the churches. And in his letter to the church at Ephesus, he has some strong words with regard to love. And you'll notice in your bulletin the first uh, heading there is the danger of losing our first love. And this is what he says. Chapter 2, Revelation. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, 
or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The church at Ephesus. Paul had given a great deal of time, you remember, to the church at Ephesus, spending at least three years there with them, getting them established in the faith. Ephesus was such an important city, a tremendous place to have a lampstand, a lighthouse, shining forth the word of life. And so Ephesus had been a very significant ministry in that region. We must not lose track of their successes. You'll notice in the, in the first part of the passage I read, he says, I know your works and your labor. In other words, they were a hard-working group. They had stuck with it. They had stayed there, stayed the course. I see your patience and that you cannot bear those who are evil. So they made a righteous stand in Ephesus, in their vicinity. They had really checked out the truth that was being spoken or whether it was error. And they had kept the faith. They would kept it pure. You have tested those who say they are apostles and, have, and are not and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Those are very strong compliments. You stayed with it. You haven't tired of it. You haven't uh, lost your sense of direction, your sense of purpose. So he says, this is good. This is really good. But, verse 4, the tide changes. I have this against you. You have left your first love. What a tragedy. Busy doing the right thing, checking out truth from apostasy. They were doing lots of right things, but they had lost their first love. As I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but thinking back into the middle 50s. Some of you uh, cannot begin to think back that far. But in the middle 50s, I met the girl who was going to be my wife. We were both in high school. I was the high school accompanist for the choir. She was a soprano, sat right there. Because I was at the piano down in the front of the room, I could survey the whole (laughs) landscape. And I saw her, and she took music from the same teacher I did. She was a singer, and I was a pianist. And... and, uh, I said, you know, a singer and a pianist need to work together. I could, I could play for her. And so our teacher put us together for a recital when we were, I think, juniors in high school. And uh, my dad came to that recital and he said, man, I wish I was 40 years younger. I thought, I am 40 years younger.
And uh, so we struck up a friendship over music, and uh, uh, as God would have things work out, uh, I led her to Christ then when we were late in our junior year. And, and I don't necessarily recommend evangelistic dating, but uh, it worked out for us. She came to faith, and, and then it came time to graduate from high school, and, and she uh, said, I think Christians ought to be in Christian universities. And uh, she was just a new Christian. And I'd been a Christian since I was a child of eight, and, uh, and I had a scholarship to a non-Christian university. But she said, I think uh, Christians ought to be in Christian universities. So anyway, to make a long story short, uh, that was the beginning of, of our love, our first love. And I was thinking back to first love. Incidentally, uh, we did go to school together because she shamed me into going to the Christian university. <laughs> and uh, so God has such, oh, his plans are so wonderful. But, you know, in that first love relationship, you just can't wait to see them again. I'd, I'd look forward to a quiet period every day because I knew I'd be at the piano and she'd be right there. And uh, made it a whole lot easier to play. In fact, sometimes I got lost playing because I... But that's another story. And uh, so this was this rich first love for us. And then time goes by. My, does it ever go by? We were married then in 1958. And uh, it's been a wonderful 54 years of, of marriage. Ups and downs, difficulties. But you know what? You have to maintain that first love. And that's not necessarily automatic. Just because you're living together, just because you have a family together, just because you have all of these things together doesn't guarantee that that heat and passion of that first love will remain. It takes effort. As life unfolds, ups and downs come. Children tax your thinking. My wife became so busy when the kids were small that sometimes I thought she loved them more than she loved me. So I was here first, remember? <laughs> and in all of the press of getting things done and raising the family, you can, you can keep things right and Stable, but where's the passion? See, the passion kind of waves away. So you have to discover ways to keep it fresh and keep it vibrant and keep it electric. Then God brings trials sometimes. Sometimes those trials are really tough. And we just have gone through one. Uh, a year ago, June of last year, uh, she had a fall when I was at a choir rehearsal. She was home alone. Thankfully, she had her panic button on, and she pushed that and received help quite quickly. But the upshot of that fall was a protracted illness that was triggered by the trauma and uh, nearly lost her. In fact, Evan came to visit us the day I was told she probably wouldn't be here tomorrow. 
And coming through that rekindled a passion for her. Dear Lord, if you take her, I know that's your business. We're in your hands. But you see, God has chosen to preserve her. Thanks be to God. And and this last year, where I've been her primary caregiver, I have seen my first love rekindled. It's so exciting. Even when she was in rehab, I'd go home to that empty house and say, oh man, this place is awful without her here. Nice house, but it's just a house until she's there. Then it's home. So I found myself anxious just to get over where she was at rehab. And it flashed back. That's like I used to be when I was a kid. I was so excited just to get to her house, just to get to choir class where she'd come in. Now I'm anxious to get to the rehab place. Isn't love grand when it's real? And that's where the Ephesians, they were so busy keeping things straight that they forgot to love God. Their passion went sideways. They weren't anxious to get to worship. Maybe they were doing it just as a matter of routine or a matter of necessity. Or maybe they were doing it for what they would get out of it instead of what God would get out of it. See, worship is about God. Worship isn't about me. Worship is about His glory, not my satisfaction. But when He is glorified, I am satisfied. That's the one thing He sees too. So the point I'm making here is that keeping the doctrine pure, it's important. I've been a seminary prof for 35 years. So I I love to have pure doctrine. That's very important. But you see, pure doctrine without passion for God is missing the point. That's like a a good marriage that's kept morally pure and, and proper. But when the passion is gone... It's just, a, it's just a good marriage. It's not a passionate love affair. And God loves the love of his people. And he wants that love to be toward him, and he wants it to be evidenced outwardly. And that's where I'm going today. It's what I want you to see. We're all in danger of losing that first love. And sometimes we're doing all the right things when we do it. It affects our ability, as it says in point two, to obey Christ's commands. Christ, remember, echoed the words of the law when he said, when the Pharisees asked, what is the greatest command in the law? He said what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's loving God. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love has both a vertical aspect, loving God, and a horizontal aspect, loving one another. 
loving one another within the body of Christ, but even more than that, loving those with whom we come in contact, whoever they are, for the purpose of witness for Christ. Two directions, vertical, horizontal. And when we lose our passion for God, we lose our ability to love as we ought, loving Him and others. The pursuit of being a lifestyle worshiper is the pursuit of God and His glory. See, sometimes when we come to faith in Christ, we know we're saved, we know we're on our way to heaven, we know that if God should call us home, great. It's better than being here. That's what the Lord has said. To be, Paul said this, remember? I, I don't know whether to live or to die. I'd rather die and be with Christ because that's far, far better. This very week, I just got home this week from visiting a dear friend of mine with whom I did ministry <clears throat> for many, many years in Southern California before coming to Oregon, and, and he's dying. In fact, he may be gone now. I haven't heard from the family yet today. But my dear friend Cliff, he loves us. He loves our family. He's been so dear to us over the years. And just Wednesday, when I left him in Southern Cal, we knew we were saying goodbye for the last time. And, and I said, well, see ya. See ya in the morning. And he was very coherent. Uh, one of the most joyful, dying men I have ever been around. He was comforting me. And totally coherent, he was saying, oh, to be with Christ, that's far better. Doctor came in and said, you know, I think we could keep you alive a little longer if you want to. And Cliff says, why would I want to do that? My wife is there, my parents are there, my brothers are there. I want to go home. What a, what a blessed thing to be around a person who has that kind of security. I love God. I love the people who are there. I can hardly wait. That was his expression. Well, if we're going to pursue God, really pursue him, and pursue the, the style, the lifestyle of worship, which means whatever we do in word and deed, we do all for the glory of God, all for the purpose that his name would be exalted, all for the purpose that others would know him and come to a knowledge of the truth. So I have chosen to take you through as quickly as possible, quickly as I can, five points that come from William Temple, which say starts with the words, to worship is to. William Temple is the Archbishop of Canterbury for a number of years. I'm not necessarily a fan of his theologically, but I have to say that when he speaks of worship in these five points, I do not know of any points that are more clear and more beautifully said. So let me walk you through them just briefly as we'll have some PowerPoint here to remind you of the Scripture. Worship is a... To quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. 
You have that there on the, uh, you don't have that PowerPoint. Oh, I'm sorry. It was sent to me. I thought you had it. <laughs> okay. Um, so it, it's, what, it's what it says in Isaiah 6.1, and we've been singing about it this morning. Evan read my notes. And so we've been singing a lot about the holiness of God. Did you notice? Holy, 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 God, Lord God Almighty, the great hymn, and then we sing holy, holy, holy. We say, we've been singing about this, right? You are here. Okay. <laughs> just, just checking. Sometimes, you know, as a teacher, I've got to just check. Um, ah, there it is. Miraculous. Okay. Now you see what it says here in Isaiah 6. Because he says, To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. Now we live in a day when the conscience is under attack. Many people don't even know they have one. They have subverted it for so long and pushed it down. When a nation has lost its conscience, people, we are in deep trouble. Because that conscience is that part of us that reminds us when things are going south. And when it says quicken the conscience, it means to make it alive, to wake it up. And nothing quickens the conscience more quickly than the holiness of God. An awareness of what holiness looks like. So, in this passage, Isaiah has this moment when he catches a view of God and his conscience wakes up. Look at what it says. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his temple, uh, train of his robe filled the temple. Above it were seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And I and they cried one to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His people have been saying that as part of worship ever since. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of he who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. God was making his presence evident to the prophet. Next, please. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone. The conscience woke up, see, when he saw the holiness of God. He became aware of his own sinful condition. I am a man of unclean lips, he says. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. How did he know that? The next line. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's how he knew it. Then one of the seraphim uh, flew to me, having a coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. Now, what does the altar mean? The altar means sacrifice. The coal has to do with purity. And the angel then touched his lips. Next. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. And so I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. 
You see, cleansing leads to a desire to serve, a desire to show forth the love that has been shown forth to us in redemption's plan. So here you have Isaiah's conversion experience, if you will. Certainly, it is a, it is a call to do what God has ordered. And so, you see, the, the, the real worship is about having our conscience awakened. So we see the sinfulness of sin. We see the solution to sin, which is repentance. We see the solution to sin, which is sacrifice. That happened at the cross. When we apply the blood of the cross to our lives, we are redeemed. We are equipped not only for heaven, but we are equipped for service. We are equipped for ministry. So worship starts with a quickening of the conscience. And then letter B, you'll see in your notes which were given in the bulletin, is to feed the mind the truth of God. That's the next slide. Feed the mind the truth of God. Now, minds are meant to be fed. In fact, minds will take in whatever they are fed, which behooves us to be sure what enters our mind is going to honor God. See, we're the custodian. You're the custodian of what enters your mind. You're the custodian of what you're reading, what you're looking at, what you're seeing, what you're hearing. So if we're going to be a worshiper in lifestyle, we will always monitor what it is that's coming into that mind that God has given us. The capacity to think, the capacity to read and, and comprehend and grasp concepts about who God is. So your mind will eat whatever you feed it. You know, there's a, there's a premise that nutritionists tell us that you are what you eat. Well, the scripture says you are what you think. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So what determines what we think is what we feed our mind. So to worship is to feed the mind the truth of God. And, of course, the truth of God is going to make us, trans, it has transforming power. That's what Paul is saying here in Romans 12, too. Be, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Feed your mind the truth of God. That's what the worshiping heart does. That you may prove... Prove here, I think, is better translated demonstrate that you may make evident what the will of God is. That which is acceptable and perfect. See? So to worship is to feed the mind the truth of God. That's why we feed on his word. That's why we feed on that which will nourish our minds, not pervert them or pollute them but nourish them. That is the will of God for you. I can assure you that. Then he goes on to say that to worship is to purge the imagination by the beauty of God. 
the beauty of God. Now, this is a concept that, as an artist, I, I really love because beauty is always God's idea. I mean, just look at what he has made. Look at his creation. Look up at the heavens or look at the mountains or look at a rose. I've been so blessed by the beauty of the roses this year. And uh, we have some in our yard. And, and I can go out there and just have a worship service in that rose, among those roses. As I see the detail, the subtlety of the color, the, the magnificence of petal on petal, and the way they unfold, beauty, beauty. And so the imagination, though, which because of sin is so often polluted, needs to be purged. The dirt needs to be swept out of that imagination. And the beauty of God is how that happens. That's why I was glad to mention the Kiev Orchestra coming up. You go and listen to a fine orchestra and choir. Oh, the beauty just sweeps over you and sweeps through you. It, it's not cleansing as in the sense of the blood of Christ, but it is cleansing for the mind. It, it, the beauty of God can purge out the junk if you can just contemplate it. So to worship is to purge the imagination. Oh, I could talk a long time about the imagination. It's such a gift of God. You know, without imagination, well, what would life be? You can imagine the glory of the presence of Christ. Imagine the glory which awaits those who love his appearing, the apostle says. When you look forward to the beauty of reconnecting with those you have loved who are already in the presence of God. And you can say, thanks be to God. In my imagination, because the glory of heaven is far greater than anything we can imagine this side of there. But that's why God has given us imagination. It's a wonderful thing. Of course, like everything else, Satan will attempt to pollute it. So when the imagination becomes polluted and vain, then it imagines all kinds of criminal activity and all kinds of ludicrous things. But that's not the purpose of the imagination. The purpose of the imagination is to contemplate the wonder and the beauty of who God is. That's a worshiping heart. Well, we could go on with that, but I must move on to the letter D, To worship is to open the heart to the love of God. Open the heart to the love of God. And of course, the first step in opening our heart to his love is to receive Christ's salvation. See, I open my heart when I say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for providing salvation. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he's shown us what love is. See, in Revelation, Ephesus had lost their first love. But then God says, this is what love is. 
that God gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, a verse you all have memorized, I'm sure. But the fact of the matter is, that love is the love that shows us what love is. You see, whatever God touches, he defines. So if you're thinking about wisdom, God defines what wisdom is. If you're defining power, God defines what power is. If you're talking about uh, forgiveness, God defines the term. Everything God touches, he defines. So when he touches love, that's the definition. He is the definition of love. He is the one who is all-powerful and all-loving and all-forgiving. That's almost enough to make a Baptist say amen. (laughs) When you realize the magnitude of the God of our adoration, it's exciting, it's thrilling. Well, he goes on to talk about opening our heart to the love of God. Next, please. In this scripture, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on that we should be called the children of God. That's the measure of love he's bestowed. He's made us his children. Therefore, uh, the world knows us because because it did not know him. Beloved, now are we the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So this is why we open our hearts to his love. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The love of God floods in as we open our hearts to the love of God. But there is another dimension of opening our hearts to the love of God. And that is we let the love in, but we let it flow through. See, the way I envision this is I have the top of my heart open so I can receive him. But I have the bottom of my heart open so it can get out. And touch others. When it comes to loving my wife, that's really easy. She's always been very easy to love. When it comes to loving our children, that's been a little harder. (laughs) Now, God has been wonderfully gracious. They're all adults. They're all serving him today. Praise his name. But you see, they put us through a little ringer here and there. So that had to take some effort. But you have to let that love flow through. And love always wins, by the way. That's what Jesus says about love. So you let it flow through. Let it touch others. There's a great little song that's in one of the versions of The Sound of Music. And it it goes like this. A bell is no bell till you ring it. A song is no song till you sing it. Love in your heart wasn't put there to stay. Love isn't love till you give it away. Isn't that neat? That's not scripture, but it could be. (laughs) Because it's a very scriptural concept. 
Love isn't love till you give it away. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's the scriptural model. Oh, I just love to be loved. Well, of course we do. But if we want to really show love forth, it's because we let go of it and give it to others. So to worship is to open the heart to the love of God. And then letter E there, to worship is to commit the will to the purpose of God. Commit the will to the purpose of God. In other words, I will will to do the will of God. I love Psalm 133. It's one of the psalms of ascent that that the pilgrims in Jerusalem sang as they were going to worship. And this psalm says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now we know that's true transtestamentally, not only in the psalms. Jesus says the same thing in, in John 17, that they may love one another. So it's blessed when children or brethren dwell together in unity, the unity of the body of Christ. It is like the precious oil on the on the head, running down to the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down in the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountain of Zion. In other words, the watering of the, of the vegetation is like the love of the unity of the brethren. For there the Lord commanded the blessing of life forevermore. God's will is for his people to be together in unity, not striving, not struggling, but saying, Lord, what would you have us to do? So help us to do that as your body. So you see, William Temple has really hit some major, major points in these five things. When you worship, the conscience is purged, by the, uh, is, is quickened or made alive by the holiness of God. When you worship, the mind is fed with the truth of God. When you worship, you purge the imagination by the beauty of God. When you worship, you open your heart to the love of God. And when you worship, you commit your will to the purpose of God. Now we also know something else about the will of God And that is what it says in 2 Peter 3.9 when it says, It is not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. So if you're here today and have never made a commitment to Jesus Christ as Savior of your soul, then his love is available. His appeal is come, taste and see that the Lord is good. But if you are a Christian and have been maybe for many years as I have, then remember, we are to devote our will to his purpose, to live in unity, to live in love, to live for his purpose, and to show forth his greatness. So remember, we have two directions of our love. We have the admonition 
don't lose this first love. And if you have, then pursue it. Learn to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because you love him. And he gives you what it takes to love one another. May God help us get it. (laughs) I can say it. I've taught school a long time. And I've had lots of students who've heard it. But not that many get it. My prayer is for myself and for you. God help us to get it. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we pray that you would preserve our first love. A passion for God. A passion for his will. A passion for his purpose. Lord, help us as we walk this journey for your glory. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.